foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Bat Shalom, good morning. Buenos dias. Sabal Khair for our Arab friends. Um, thank you so much, Rabbi John. It's, uh, I guess, I think this is my fourth time that I've been to Congregation Beth Messiah over the years. And, uh, you know, I travel and speak all over the country and all over the world. And honestly, I think this is, this is, I would say, definitely the most beautiful building um, that I've ever spoken in. But also, beyond just a beautiful building, an incredibly beautiful congregation. So it's a genuine, tremendous honor and blessing for me to be here. So thank you so much. Price point on the books, probably about $100,000. That's, that's a Rain Man reference. So all of the products are... I think, I think there's just books. I don't even remember exactly what I sent, but everything is free. So if you want to take something, just take it. Obviously, if you want to leave an offering, I'm not going to fight you over that. Um, but it's Shabbat, and if you'd like to, you know, in a month from now, you remember, hey, actually, this book's not half bad. You can always go to my website at joelstrumpet.com and leave a donation. But don't feel any obligation. Stuff out there is free, and please save me from having to ship anything back. So... Um, and, but make sure you do leave some things because I'll be speaking at Hinnani Ministries on Sunday and I want to make sure there's at least something for them, but I'm not sure how well I plan that. So in the, um, in the discussions beforehand with Rabbi John and, and Biff Van Cleve, who I'm staying with, who's been sort of a bit of the mediator uh, in terms of me coming out this time, the discussion was of all the different things that we could talk about this morning. Um, I just got back from Saudi Arabia just a couple of weeks ago. To, to see the real Mount Sinai, and I've actually got some Houstonian, is that the right term? Houstonians? Houstonian friends that were with me, um, the caches who actually hiked to the top with, with me, so some beasts in your midst. Um, it's a beast of a mountain. But we're going to talk about Mount Sinai, what I truly believe is the real location of Mount Sinai. Let me begin, let me make sure I have control of the remote control. So I'm excited as well that the kids and the Shabbat teachers have stayed in because we've got a lot of pictures, and the kids are actually going to really enjoy this, and we will as well because there's a lot of pictures. <laughs> so let me just start out with a very simple diagram. I want to just begin briefly by talking about the importance of Mount Sinai. So for most average Christians okay, that have a very... Gentile Christian New Testament mindset. We look at the story, okay, the story of redemption that, that the Lord is in the process of accomplishing. And we kind of go at the very beginning, you had creation. That's a pretty big mountain. It's a biggie. But then the New Testament, it just sort of slowly, gradually ramps up. You know, it's all really just building until you get to the next major mountain, which is the first coming of the Messiah. Okay, the first century, the cross, we go, that's another huge mountain, and that's big, obviously. And then we're looking forward, we're sort of in that in-between period, we're looking forward to his return. And actually, a lot of Christians, they just sort of check that off of their theological belief box, but they don't, almost don't even really focus on it much. It's more of just, they're more of just like, someday I die and go to heaven forever, you know. The return of Jesus sometimes is just a secondary issue. But that's sort of, if you were to draw the average Christian's framework of the, of the Bible. That's sort of how many people would view it. Now, the reality is, from a biblical perspective, 
Yes, you have the story of creation, which is huge. That's a towering mountain. But the reality is, from a biblical perspective, the story of the Exodus, which culminates at the mountain with God himself coming down on the mountain, the great theophany, this is the towering mountain that all of the prophets, that everyone are pointing back to and saying, what, what, is, what is the consistent reminder, exhortation that revolves around the Exodus throughout the Scriptures? Remember, 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 remember. Do not forget. Teach these things to your children. Remind them. Remember this, this event, this unparalleled event. You know, I've been in a lot of crazy services. I'm charismatic. I believe in the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit, which means I've seen some crazy stuff over the years, and I'm sure many of you have as well. But I've never seen God come down in thunder and lightning and earthquakes and this increasing blasting of the trumpets to where, you know, a million people or whatnot are, are sitting there begging, please tell him to stop talking. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's gotten crazy, but it's never reached that level, right? More like just some eccentric guy flopping around at the, but, um, or whatever, you know, I'm just kidding. I'm, sometimes I've been the eccentric guy. But from a biblical perspective, the prophets are in between and they're pointing back to the Exodus. Remember, remember, remember. Remember the covenant that the Lord made with Israel. But they're also looking forward to the next towering mountain, which is the coming of the Messiah. But here's the reality from, a, from the perspective of the story of redemption. The biggest of all is the return of the Lord when the sky will be split and the Lord Himself, okay, Yehovah, Yahweh, however, whatever term it is, that you, is when He comes back in fire with all of His angels and the events that took place throughout the Exodus, again, that culminated at the mountain. Get this, guys, from, from the perspective of the Bible, that is intended to be a faint preliminary dress rehearsal foreshadow of the ultimate redemption that is yet to come. As crazy, as mind-blowing as the great theophany was, it was a faint foreshadow of the glorious redemption that is yet in our future. And we're to have that perspective. This is huge and we need to understand it, but it's pointing to something much greater. So now here's the thing. Within the whole field, within academia, among scholars... Jewish, Christian, unbelievers, liberal, conservative. This is huge. The vast majority today, they don't even believe the Exodus ever happened. They call it the Jewish myth. You go, really? Like these? And the reason is you go, why, why don't they believe it? Because there's really no evidence. You go, wait a minute. You know, there's this massive event to this mass migration of people. Is that, you know, of course, you've got the evidence that Israel is in Israel, and they were in Israel, and they're back in Israel. But what about the, the Exodus? And so they, they call it the Jewish myth. And it's not just unbelievers. It's, believe it or not, even Christians, they question it. And I would argue the reason is because they've been looking in the wrong place. Now, I'm going to just start out with location. Okay, from a biblical perspective, Moses, Exodus 2.15, he fled from the presence of Pharaoh after he kills the Egyptian. And he settled where? In the land of Midian. And of course, as he gets there, he's after he marries Zipporah. He goes from being Egyptian royalty to now he's a shepherd, and he's shepherding his fa father-in-law's flocks, that's Jethro, um, who in the Quran, by the way, in the Bible he's called Jethro. In the Quran, he's called Shu'aib, or Shu'aib. 
We'll, that'll be important in a minute. So when he is there in the land of Midian, he's shepherding his sheep, and he comes to the land, he comes to the uh, mountain called Horeb, or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. So Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, is somewhere in the vicinity of Midian. It's sort of on the far side of the wilderness, but it's within the distance that you would lead sheep to feed them, or goats. That's the point. So let's just start there. This is, we're Ameri most of us are Americans, which means we are uh, geographically illiterate. Uh, we need maps. I was going to try to say cartographically illiterate. We're geographically illiterate. So the, the I'm just going to make this simple. The pizza, the slice of pizza-shaped peninsula, that's the Sinai Peninsula, which they call it the Sinai Peninsula because that's the traditional site of Mount Sinai. Now, briefly, that site was not believed to be Mount Sinai until the 4th century when a bunch of Christian monks, and this is kind of funny, they left Egypt because they were tired of the corruption of modern society. Things have gotten so bad, they're like, we're just going out into the desert. So just sort of to put things in perspective, although I would argue things have gotten much worse, but they went out into the desert to pray. They're the desert fathers. And they just sort of arbitrarily just declared that this mountain is Mount Sinai because it was the biggest. There was no evidence, there's no historic, there's no tradition prior to the fourth century. And then after the Saracens, so these are the children of Ishmael before Islam, they kept killing these monks. And eventually, Emperor Justinian built a fortress down there to protect the monks. And he called it the. Um, well, it's called St. Catherine's Monastery, but the longer subtitle is Of the God-Trodden Mountain. So once you had the Roman emperor, his sort of stamp of approval, from that time forward, traditional Christianity has always said that's Mount Sinai. There's no historical, biblical, traditional evidence. Now, on the other side of the Red Sea is a mountain called Jebel al-Loz in Arabic, which just means the Mountain of Almonds, which is interesting, by the way, and I'll just say this, because in Torah, the Lord gives Moses instructions for the design of the menorah, which is designed after almond branches, right? And the mountain today is called the Mountain of Almonds. And that's the mountain that we're going to be discussing and looking at. Now, also, by the way, the difference between the two is the difference between sort of a natural coincidence, which is the traditional view, which says that when the Israelites fled Egypt. They kind of walked through these shallow marshes that might have been a few feet deep, but then the wind blew. It just happened to be just the right wind blowing that night, and then the Egyptians were just a bunch of klutzes and just all drowned, you know, when the water came back. As opposed to if it's on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, the Red Sea, then you've got a real mirror. So it's the difference between this sort of naturalistic event that scholars try to justify and go, oh, it just so happened to be that this shallow marsh, the wind was blowing just right, and they kind of walked through it, and then the wind stopped, and Pharaoh, and like the elite Green Berets of the day, they all drowned. But on the other side, you've got the Lord ripping the ocean in half, which is how it's described biblically. You know, it's, and it's really neat, too, because the Lord, in the whole story of the Exodus, this is a side note, the Lord was wooing his people, and he was showing his mighty and outstretched arm. And Israel was conflicted. They were sort of still in love with the gods of Egypt, and they were sort of in between. And he brings them up to the Red Sea, and he's like, so, can your old boyfriend do this? 
And then he just rips the ocean in half. And they're like, no, I don't think he can do that. And then like the next morning, they're looking back and he's like, oh, by the way, I drowned your old boyfriend. Just to be clear, if you want to know who's the sovereign of all things, let's just be real clear here. And then he gets her to the other side and he starts saying, and I'm not just strong, I'm also compassionate, water from the rock, and a quail and all that good stuff. Okay, so Claudius Ptolemy, the father of modern geography in the first century, he's a Roman guy. He places Midian in Saudi Arabia. This is a map recreated based on his layout of the world. And he's got two cities over there, just called Madium and Modian. Now, it's, these are just variations of Midian. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually has those identical two variations, Madian and Madium in the Septuagint. That's about 250 years before Yeshua. Now, what's interesting is when you get over there into Saudi Arabia, you've got one town called Al, it's Al, pronounced in Arabic, Al Bidda, or Al Bad, and then you've got Magna. And Magna's right on the water, right on the Red Sea. Al, Al Bidda is about 20 miles inland, and they're both oasises, or oases. I, I still don't know how to say that right. Oasi. But the point is, the locals say these were the capitals of Midian. Now, the funny thing is that the, the Western scholars, they go, oh, that's not Midian. That's not the land of Midian. The only people who believe that are this weird little group of evangelicals that are all excited about Mount Sinai, but they're stupid. And then you go there and you're like, guys, the local Arabs have been calling this the capital of Midian for well over a thousand years. And they don't call it that because they've been watching evangelical YouTube videos. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's so funny to hear the critics, and then you go there, and all the locals are just like, yeah, this is the capital of, of Midian. You know, it actually says there's a sound. Sorry, I'm just, that's my Arab impression. There, smoke. <laughs> there's a sign when you come into town. It's called, they call it, like Jethro's house, Caves of Jethro. And so then there you can see Jebel Lowe's the mountain, which is about 20 miles outside of Albid. Philo, okay, who is a Jew, roughly the same time as Yeshua, first century, but he's over in Alexandria in Egypt. He says in his writings that Mount Sinai is the tallest and most sacred mountain in the district of Midian. So we know where Midian is. We've got a first century tradition, at the very least, Philo believed that Mount Sinai was the tallest mountain in the land of Midian, of which Jebel Olos, that range, is the tallest mountain. But not just Philo, also Josephus, who's another Jew in Jerusalem. So sort of two different parts of the world, probably two very different sort of traditions. Josephus likewise makes reference to Moses leading the flocks of Jethro, where he comes to Mount Sinai, and he says this is the highest of the mountains there about. The point is this, guys. We begin with... On one hand, the traditional site that has nothing before the 4th century, you're talking a few hundred years, 400 years after Yeshua, versus a mountain that has an ancient Jewish tradition saying this is the real Mount Sinai from at least the 1st century. That's where we start. Of all of the critical treatments of this, you will never see a single scholar ever interact with this data and say there was an ancient Jewish tradition in the first century, in the time of Paul, in the time of Yeshua, that's where they believed Mount Sinai was. That's, that's a pretty important point. So we start there. Now let's start looking at pictures. Oh, actually this. 
So if, if Moses was leading his sheep and goats to Mount Sinai, he's over in Midian, and if the traditional site is the river, that means he went on a 500-mile round trip to feed the goats. Okay? That's a pretty long hike through some harsh deserts. It doesn't make sense because he didn't put them on a boat. He didn't put the goats on a boat. The goat boat. On the other hand, if he went from the capital of Midian, Albida, which, you know, you go, well, why would he be there? Because it's an oasis. There's water. It's very simple. And it was on the major Arab caravan route. Like it's the, once you go, you can look at something on Google Maps and go, well, they could have been anywhere. Once you go there, you go, yeah, this is the only place that people would have lived. It's the only place that's really inhabitable. But if he just made that little 20-mile journey or so, it's easy to justify that. It's very difficult to justify the, the trip to the traditional site. So beyond that, as I said, you can see there, Al-Bidda, it's also called Muga al-Shu'aib, which just means the caves of Jethro. So the point is, the, the alternative name for the city is Jethro's house. You know, y'all in Jethro's house now? So here's a picture of one of the caves. I don't know where that came from. Just reminds me of some, get all up in Abraham's bosom, y'all. Um, there's a whole bunch of these caves. And if you look at them, they're very similar in design to, for example, Petra up in Jordan. So what modern scholars will say is that Petra was the capital of the Nabataean Arab kingdom. But they built upon the previous Edomite kingdom, the kingdom of Edom. And even the Bible says that the Edomites built their houses up in the cliffs of the rocks. It says in Obadiah, right? Like, you who say you're like an eagle, you know, you build your houses up in the, in the cliffs of the rocks. From there I will bring you down, says the Lord. But later the Nabataeans, so this was, and Nabataean, by the way, comes from, the, from Nebaioth, which was the first son of Ishmael. Okay, so the Ishmaelite children in that whole region, they built upon the ruins of previous settlements or previous civilizations. Well, likewise, here, right in the center of town, there's an archaeological park. I think you buy tickets, we went in, there's all these caves, and you have this, these Nabataean designs, but it's built upon the previous Midianite civilization. Same thing as up in Petra. Now, when you, so in other words, this is probably where Moses lived for 40 years. When you step out of one of these caves, this is the horizon that greets you, and you can see up there that tallest mountain, that's Mount Sinai, that's Jebel Allah's. So the first time I saw that, it, I stepped out, and it just struck me, and it took my breath away, and I went, for 40 years, Moses stepped out of his house and probably looked at that thing and had no idea that someday, think of that, 40 years, he was going to encounter God face-to-face -face on the mountain. And it was called the mountain of God even previous, which is a really interesting thing. Exodus 17. Now we're talking about the shifting to the split rock. The Lord says to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders. Take in your hand the staff that you struck the Nile with and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now when you are in this area, let me just go back. I'm just going to make a point, and this is not the best picture to demonstrate it. But there's a lot of rocks. I have an app on my phone, and I counted, and there was somewhere between 30 and 40 quintillion rocks. Like, that's all there is, is rocks. And so the Lord says, I want you to go strike the rock at Horeb. 
You, do you want to be a little, give me a little more clarity, Lord? The rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out, so the people will drink. And Moses did so in, in the sight of the elders of Israel. So first of all, the point is this. By reading the text, we can deduce that the rock at Horeb was a prominent, well-known, easily identifiable landmark. It was not just your average rock. Okay, it wasn't just, what do you mean the rock at Horeb? Like, there's a lot of, there's rocks everywhere, okay? Something that would have been well-known, identifiable. It was a prominent landmark. Second, the biblical criteria, the end of Isaiah 48, says they didn't thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water gush forth out of the rock for them. He baka, he split, he clave the rock, and the water gushed forth. Okay, this is not, well, we're down here in Texas. You know, oh, came some bubbling crude, you know. You know, it's, this is not just like a little oil, that is. Texas tea. This is, whatever this prominent rock was, the Lord claved it down the middle, and the water gushed forth from the rock. So, in the whole vicinity of this mountain, is there anything that might fall into that? And again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying with absolute certainty that this is the rock that Moses split, but you've got this rock. Can you see me down the bottom? That rock is 65 feet tall. It's really hard to cap. That thing is six stories tall. Just the rock. The hill that it's on is probably another 100 feet or so. And it's split down the middle, as you would expect. And you can see that thing from like a mile away. Like it's stand, you know, it's like going to like Arches National Park. Like it's, even if it has nothing to do with the biblical narrative, it's a, really weird formation and from even a geological perspective you go like how did that end up there it's not like it's a different type of mineral that remained after everything else war you know like it's like just someone just set it up there on a pedestal and when you get up there you climb up there i'm not a geologist but doesn't it look does it does that look like something that massive water gush like can you see the water erosion Again, I'm not a geologist, I don't know, but you get there and you go, like, it really does look like something happened here. And what's so cool about it, for what it's worth, is this is not, like, when you go to Israel, I, you know, I've been to Israel, I don't even know how many times, you go to, you know, this is where Yeshua would have walked, you know, but it's like 20 feet down. See the rock way down there? You know, that would have been a Roman road that he could have maybe walked by, or, like, this is where... Peter did a miracle, you know, this type of thing. It's not just like some place where a miracle happened. It is the miracle. And it's out in the middle of the desert, forgotten. And, and I want to be clear, I, I did not discover this. This has been discussed with an evangelical, like certain guys traveling around talking about this for 30 years or so. But it's not until just recently that Saudi Arabia opened to the world. It used to just be hidden behind the Islamic curtain, so to speak, forgotten by history. And so here it is, preserved, protected. The Lord places this rock there. He splits it, water gushes forth. He, he, the people drink, and then they forget about it. And beyond that, the New Testament says that it represents Messiah that was, that was broken for us. And it's just sitting there for the world to remember. Remember? Remember this? The whole world's forgotten, and the Lord says, do not forget. Remember, remember, remember. And it is almost weird. People have made videos to the degree. It almost looks like the back of a person and heart and lungs. And like, I won't get into all that, but it's a pretty stunning thing. I'll just say that. Here's the picture of 
Mount Sinai, Jebel Allah is the first time I saw it. And the first time I saw it was a few years ago, and it was before Saudi was opened, and I won't get into all the details, but we kind of, I got in on a legal visa, and then we went up there, but we were just weren't sure what we were going to encounter. Like a week before we were there, some Bedouins had been shooting at someone, you know, so we just didn't know what we were, we were going to encounter. So we snuck in in the middle of the night, we kind of camped, got up early in the morning, but we messed up, and we kind of camped in the wrong valley. So we had to walk across this valley, which is huge. That's like probably three miles, you know. And by the time that we crossed three miles, this, this little group of us were all separated. We were like football field away from each other. And I'm just dumb Joel, right? I'm not an archaeologist. I got my backpack. First time I'm here, I'm like, I don't know. I heard this is Mount Sinai. I'm checking it out. And I'm just doo 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 And I'm walking along. And all of a sudden I come up to this little sort of cave structure, and I go, hey, look at that. And there's a mural painted, it's sort of on, on the underneath of the rock of all these archers. And I take some pictures, I take out my, my iPhone, I'm an archaeologist, doop 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 doo doo just dummy stumbling along, and I, and I text it to my wife, because there's crazy great cell reception out there, literally better than in front of the Sprint World Headquarters. <laughs> And that's not a joke. So I send it to my wife, and my wife says, um, yeah, wow, that's exactly like an Exodus 19. And I was like, what are you talking about, woman? I'm the Bible teacher here. And um, I did not say that. And uh, she's just, and she goes, yeah, it says at the end of, well, I'll read it in a second, just a couple more pictures. Clearly archers shooting arrows. There's a close-up of an arrow. And some of it, I mean, this is, and it falls, by the way, right into the age of when it would be expected. They're all shooting arrows. Well, what, what, what's going on here? Exodus 19, 10 to 13. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready. That's the mikvah before the wedding for the betrothal ceremony. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on the third day, this is just a simple statement. The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. Like, that's just beyond mind-blowing in the sight of all the people. But, he says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. And right at the base of the mountain, I'm sitting there looking, going, huh, looky there. Exactly what the Bible describes. And I sent it to some friends that have been going here for years and they try and they're just like we've never seen that and i'm like i'm an archaeologist <laughs> amazing historical biblical discovery i'm just like walking along hey, look at it's basically you texans will get this it's just the equivalent of you guys have these cute little signs this property protected by smith and wesson it's just the ancient version which, by the way, as a side note, you, you know, everybody always argues, gun people always argue, what is the best for home protection? Bow and arrow. Because you always hear people be like, my adrenaline was going, I didn't even know I got shot. I thought I got stung by a hornet. Or something stupid, right? Like, no one who ever gets shot with an arrow ever questions whether or not they got shot. So just get a dull bow and arrow and save money. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. And their friends will run too. 1 Kings 19, if this is the real Mount Sinai, we know the story where Elijah flees and he goes to the cave and he's at Mount Sinai, right? He has this encounter with God. 
Well, is there a cave? I mean, of course, most mountains might have a cave somewhere. Well, there is a very prominent cave right on the front of the mountain, exactly as the Bible describes. Just another coincidence. That was from my first trip. This is a view looking out. It's quite high. I've got an arrow there so you can kind of zero in. Now we're going to zoom back a bit, and you can see kind of how high. It's about a 45-minute to an hour climb. It's a pretty substantial climb. Now here's what's amazing, and I didn't see this until the second time that I went back. When you read the biblical narrative about Mount Sinai, it's very clear that, and commentators, just, just by reading the text, they say, Mount Sinai seems to be structured like the temple. There's like the Holy of Holies, but then there's just sort of, it's a two-tiered mountain, kind of like you have the holy place, but then you have the Holy of Holies. And numerous, I mean, Franz and Delich, some of these German commentators, turn of the century, 1800, 19, like they make reference to this. Well, when you get up over the ridge past Elijah's cave, I'll show you some pictures in a minute, there is essentially a plateau up there. You can see the second peak up there, which that's the one that we, we got to. Um, that's the top. But if you're down below, you actually can't even see the peak unless you're really far away or unless you go up and over the ridge. So once you get up over there, there's actually an entire football field plateau. It's like a bowl. And it's exactly what you would expect by just simply by reading the text. Now, Exodus 24, after the covenant had been made, again, it was, a, it was a marriage covenant between God and Israel. It was a betrothal ceremony. And what do you do at the end of the wedding? You have a feast. This was the covenant sealing feast. The Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel to represent all of Israel. You all are to worship from a distance, but Moses alone comes all the way up. So they're up. he says, come up to the Lord, but only Moses goes all the way up. And so you read that, and it's interesting until you actually see it. So verse 9 through 11, Moses, Aaron, Adab, and Abihu, they go up, and, they, and this is just an amazing passage. They saw the God of Israel. And it's like beyond what you, even the Bible has a hard time describing, and under his feet was something like a pavement of lapis lazuli or cobalt blue. Like it's just hard to describe and put into words. Something like pavement as bright blue as the sky. And then here's the miracle. They saw God, but God did not kill them. That's essentially what it's saying. God did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. And here's the, the phrase. They saw God drink. Just like they, they looked up and they saw his feet. So they're down on the plateau. They're over the first ridge. They're on the plateau. They eat the, the wedding feast, which is the prefigurement of the ultimate consummation wedding feast. People, you know, in the church, I'll just say this, and forgive me, with regard to the rapture, the idea is that the church goes up to heaven and, and, and enjoys the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, while Israel is down on the earth undergoing Jacob's trouble. It's Israel's wedding. Isaiah says it takes place on Mount Zion. It's not, I'm not saying maybe it starts in heaven, but the point is this, don't throw Israel under the bus. It's there, it's the consummation of their wedding that began at Mount Sinai. So here's a picture of the plateau. You get up over the ridge. It's kind of like a bowl, you know, because there's this big ridge on either side. That's, that's kind of just looking. And then, oh, okay, this actually makes even more sense. So then after Moses comes down, Joshua, good old Joshua's up there with him, and Israel's now engaged in the golden calf in the middle of the wedding. 
the wedding ceremony's not even over and they're already cheating with a cow god, you know? Like, if you ever feel insecure, don't feel bad. The God of Israel, his bride-to-be cheated on him with a cow god! Just kidding, but not really. So when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, so they hear this noise down below, Joshua says to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of the cry of triumph nor the sound of defeat, but they're singing. Why can't Joshua and Moses see them? They can hear them, but they can't see them. Normally, if you're coming down a mountain, you've got a pretty good view because they were in the bowl. They were in the plateau. They were halfway down, but they couldn't. It just, again, it just completely makes sense. You couldn't see the people until you get up over the next ridge. So there's another view looking up at the Holy of Holies from the plateau, again, where they most likely ate the marriage supper. And you can see, by the way, I'll just point this out, you can see the dark at the top. A lot of people make a big deal. That's because the fire of God came down. I don't really think that's the reason. I'm not a geologist, but the top is basalt. The lower part is granite. And you see seams of that basalt all throughout the area. So I don't want to try to make something of something. It is interesting that the top of the mountain is dark, but I don't know that it's because of the fire coming down necessarily. By the way, two years ago, we camped up there at the plateau. We didn't plan it. That's where, that was the view of the Milky Way that night. It was the last night of Sukkot. We didn't plan it. It was just coincidence. We got there and we camped up there. It was one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever done in my life. Like I, I sat up until two in the morning, just staring at the stars and shooting stars and praying and going, I don't believe this is real, you know? It was just amazing. Exodus 24, Moses got up early the next morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. If this is the real Mount Sinai, there has to be an altar at the foot of the mountain made with stones that are not cut. And then the Lord commands Moses to sacrifice a bunch of bulls on behalf of Israel. This is also the blood sealing aspect of the covenant. So, at the base of the mountain, there it is, looking down from the cave. Can you see the structure? This very long structure. It's like a hockey stick. It kind of turns at an angle. Why is it made that way? Well, simply, how many, we're in Texas. How many people here have ever slaughtered a, a bull or a cow? Has anybody in the room slaughtered? Rab, Rabbi Jesse? Yeah? And one more. How many have skinned a deer? You get it quite a lot. Just increasingly with each generation, there's just less men and more snowflakes, but um, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm in Texas, people. Come on. So here's the thing is, is cows are smart. So you don't want Clarabelle walking down the thing and seeing what's about to happen. So they, they, they go around the corner and then they go, and Moses is up there. Uh, anyway, so you get the idea. This is a slaughtering altar. And up at the end is where the altar is. And by the way, the Saudis, Kind of see a picture there, uncut stones, still sitting there to this day, right at the base of the mountain. Can you see behind it? Because in Deuteronomy, it says a, a river comes down behind the altar. Right behind it is a dry river. And then the Saudis, about 15 years ago, tried, they were sick of all these American evangelicals sneaking into their country. So they're like, this is not Mount Sinai, just leave it alone. So they did an archaeological survey to try to disprove that it's Mount Sinai. And this is what they, they, they exhumed the, the altar a little bit. This is what they found, a layer of ash, charcoal, and bones found mixed with other organic materials, exactly what you would expect to find if it was an altar. Exactly. And then 
right next to the altar. Oh, it just so happens that there's, well, basically there's 11 pillars, exactly as is described, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel right next to the altar. Well, isn't that just another coincidence? I mean, there's just so many coincidences right next to it. And they are carved, obviously, because the altar is the only thing that's made with uncut stones. So after Moses sacrifices the bulls, he sprinkles it on the pillars which represent the tribes. Okay, Moses was not like a Catholic priest, like just, you know what I mean, sprinkling holy water on like a million people going out like, that's just a weird Moses sprinkling blood on everyone. Um, it's like, what was the movie, Carrie or whatever? Um, I don't know, it just doesn't seem... He sprinkled it on the pillars which represented the 12 tribes right next to the altar. You have to be... And then, oh, look at that coincidence. About 300 yards from Moses' altar is this big outcropping of rocks covered with pictures of cows. It's just a coincidence. The scholars go, this is just a pastoral scene. Um, there was cows in, in Saudi Arabia, shouldn't really, in Arabia, shouldn't really think much of it. Bunch of the, a whole bunch of them. Probably, I don't know, 15 petroglyphs of cows. Now, here's a picture from Egypt. This is from the tomb of Pharaoh Seti. And this is, let me just put it this way, this is Egyptian religious iconography. Egyptian iconography. Notice, here's a better picture. See the person, looks like he's trying to bench press the cow underneath. That's very unusual. See the person holding the tail? Don't ever try to do that. <laughs> These are, this is, it's conveying an icono iconographic form, worship of this Egyptian cow god. Here's a picture of one of the uh, murals of the cows. That's a very unusual thing. Point is this, the scholars, they mock it. They're like, these are just farmers with cows. That is iconography, religious iconography, portraying worship from people that I is identical to imagery from Egypt. These people that carved this came from Egypt. You get the point? Further, see the person back there holding the tail? I never noticed that the first time. There's another one, holding the tail. Okay, this is very specific. Exodus 32, the next day they rose early, they offered burnt offerings, they brought peace offerings. The people, this is the opposite of what happened on the mountain. They sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. These are the idolaters. The word their play has like sexual connotations. This was pagan ritual. There was a big celebration that took place. Okay, it was like, uh, you know, I don't know exactly. And then the Lord says, go down for your people that you brought out of, of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So this is the mural of all the cows. And this is a little bit, forgive me, but we're mostly adults here. I didn't notice this either because this is not what I was first paying attention to. Every single one of the men humans in this picture, if this is just a farming scene, they are very excited to be farmers. We'll just put it that way. I'm sorry, I don't know how to handle this. Um, the point is, this is exactly what the Bible describes. Okay, This is not your average men's hunting trip or whatever. It came about as soon as Moses came near. Now he comes down. He came near the camp. He saw the calf, and they're dancing. Okay, again. They're naked, they're dancing, they're worshiping the cows. His anger burned, and that's when he throws the first tablets down and he smashes them. Here's another mural that's right nearby, a bunch of people dancing. And again, most of them, if you look, they seem to be men, they seem to be naked, they seem to be dancing. I know it's hard to convey, 
dancing with stick figures, but this captures it quite well. And then near, again, exactly what the Bible describes. Now, um, then of course, well, I'm not even going to read the whole thing. The Lord commanded, Moses made the call, and they killed 3,000 of the idolaters. These were their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their friends, and they killed them. You have to cut off the evil from your midst, so to speak. And here's another petroglyph that was just found a couple months ago, and we got to see it when we were there. Again, the same images of these dancing people, both of them with something piercing through them. And I go, I don't think it's a guitar, because their hands aren't on it, and they didn't really have guitars. And I go, it's, and again, naked, maybe, well, anyway, um, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but um, two naked people with something piercing through them in the same form of dancing. Again, it's just point after point after point, everything lines up. Now, let me do this, and I'm going to end, because I've already gone a couple minutes over. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. Actually, can you do that? Go back to the very first slide for me. Let me just end this way. How many people wake up every day and read the news and sigh and groan? How many would love to have the Messiah come back, come back on the earth and put an end to all of this insanity, right? This is the cry. All of creation is groaning. All of creation, the spirit within us is groaning. So let me go to that second slide. When the Israelites would move through the desert, they would follow the Lord. And when the cloud moved, Moses would have the Levites pick up the ark, which represents the presence of God going before them. And what does he say? Arise, O God, let your enemies be scattered. The idea is as they move in, they're going to rout out these pagan peoples. Their enemies are going to be subjugated as long as the Lord goes with them. But it was a prayer and a declaration. Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Psalm 68, which Psalm of David, much, much later, David repeats this. Arise, O God, let your enemies be scattered. This phrase is both historical as it pertains to the Exodus. It's also a prayer. It's an intercessory cry of all of the righteous down through history. And it's essentially saying this, presently Yeshua, after making atonement, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It says in Hebrews, what's he doing? He's interceding, yes, but in Hebrews it says he's waiting. He is waiting. From that time onward, he has been waiting until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet, until he crushes wickedness, Satan and his followers, his enemies under his feet. He comes back, establishes his throne from Jerusalem. The knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. No more corrupt politicians. The meek will inherit and govern the earth under his leadership. No more human trafficking. No more corrupt politicians. No more political ads. No more drug addiction. No more premature overdoses. No more sugar addiction. Um, no more abortion industry, no more premature COVID deaths, no more vaccines, no more insanity. The day is coming. It's not, it's not the end of the world. It's the end of this current wicked system. Okay? And our prayers arise, O oh God. Get up off of your throne and come down and fix this nightmare. Now, 
Let me just end by saying this. It's a pretty crazy thing to believe what we believe. We believe a divine God-man is coming back from heaven to fix everything. If you really think about it, it's pretty crazy. But you know something? The idea that God would come down on the mountain, that's also pretty crazy. But He has. And the evidence is just sitting right there for the world to discover. Just sitting there as a testament, as a monument. And the Lord is about to, I'm convinced, remind the whole world. He goes, guys, I told you to remember. I told you not to forget. And we go, yeah, but you hit it in Saudi Arabia. And he goes, okay. But now is the time for the Jewish world to remember. Now is the time for the whole Arab world to remember. Now is the time for the backslidden, sleepy church to remember. It's time for the whole world to remember. Remember what I did. Because the God who came down in blazing fire and thunder and lightning, again with the blasting of the trumpets, with a thick cloud, and an earthquake is soon coming back. In the clouds, in fire, in lightning, in thunder, with the blasting of trumpets. And it might sound crazy to the world, but it's real. And it's time to remember. It's time to remember what happened in the past as we look forward to what's happening in the future. So, amen. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your consistent witness down through history. You have not left us without a witness. Lord, we ask that you would revive the cry that was so prevalent among the early Jewish believers, the Jews and the Gentiles together, this Maranatha cry, Come, Lord Yeshua, come back. We ask that you would reignite that flame, that flame that burned during the Jesus movement, the, mo the greatest revival in recent American history. Lord, we ask that you would bring that back, that cry, that urgency for holiness. To, for, uh, to share your good news, to see your good news spread throughout the earth. We ask that you would fill this house with your fire. Touch each one of us. Let this house be a, uh, a kindling point that sends out sparks throughout the city. We thank you for these things. We commit ourselves to you individually and corporately in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time. I'm Steve Wiggins and this is the Groundworks Ministries. Today we're in Judges chapter 14. And now in Hebrew, the word shofet, from which we get the word judge, refers to a ruler, a ruler who commanded a tribe or united multiple tribes of Israel at critical times in Israel's history. A collection of shofets is referred to as shofetim. Therefore, the name of the book in Hebrew is Sefer Shofetim. Literally, it means the book of the judges. It's a collection of true accounts of real-life, otherwise average people. And at least one woman, Deborah, who God raised up and anointed to miraculously and wisely or strongly deliver his people, Israel. Now, although each of these judges is a savior and anointed, none of them could save completely. And that is God's greater intended message in this Sefer Shofetim. While God sees His people and their hopeless conditions, 
the judges whom God sends all fall short in their ability to save to the uttermost. And that's what separates the judges from Jesus. Now, there's another name in Hebrew, Moshiach. Moshiach means anointed one. It's where we get the word Messiah, which is where we derive the word Christ. And there are small m Moshiachs all over the place in the Bible. We see them here in the judges, men and women that are anointed by God in order to do great things. But only one of them is the a capital M, Moshiach, the actual Messiah, because he saves to the uttermost, not temporarily, and not until the enemy uh, gains enough power in order to take control again. The book of Judges lays out the utterly helpless condition of men without the true Messiah. So part of what we're learning is not that God will raise up men in order to deliver his people, but we're realizing that the men whom he raises up can only partially deliver. No human, priest, warrior, senior pastor, or politician can save you to the uttermost. God is saying, look at all these great leaders. None of them saves completely, much less could save you eternally. So with Jesus, God didn't use a man to save his people. In Jesus, God himself, the person of the Trinity known as the Messiah, became a man in order to save us from the sin of the flesh and to save us completely. We know this because Micah, the Jewish prophet, in chapter 5, verse 2, speaks not only of how the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but he also speaks to his deity. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, yet shall come forth from you to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Or what about Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25? Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. So today's chapter is a continuation of a narrative that began actually in Judges 13. It's the well-known story of Samson. But do we know Samson's story as well as we think that we do? Samson will only begin to save, but still constitutes him as a judge. Samson is such an entertaining and a rough-and-tumble, break-the-mold kind of guy, and we may become too preoccupied with his persona, but resist the urge to focus on the Savior that God raises up, because in doing so, we allow the man to eclipse the God who raises up and uses even sinful men. And we see Samson's pride in this story. This is not the story of a man's life. It's the story of God's actions. And let it be a lesson, lest we beatify pastors or billionaire politicians or generals in our day. God always surgically accomplishes His will on earth. That's His sovereignty. And yet, as he surgically accomplishes his will, he uses men and women as his instruments. And by the way, none of his human instruments are sterile. None of us are sinless. 
So, let's begin reading at the beginning of chapter 13, Judges chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Um, Sorry, I jumped ahead there for a second. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, the reason why daily Bible reading is so important is that it gives us spiritual true north. Just imagine looking at a compass and you're looking for true north. And all these other compasses are pointing to the way that they say that north is. But only one of them is actually set magnetically to true north. That's what the Bible is. So Christians who have experienced salvation and are filled with the Holy Spirit yet have experienced very little in terms of discipleship, well, those Christians are set up for disappointment, for disillusionment, and unnecessary hardship. Discipleship, by the way, is a process of learning to be disciplined to read the Bible, taught by the Holy Spirit, in order to obey God's Word, and it carries the mandate that we share God's Word, which He has revealed to us when we sought it, For the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission, that is, knowing God and making Him known so that others can be saved and encouraged. It encourages believers in the Word and it evangelizes non-believers. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing, immerse them in the name of the Father and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Don't just teach them about the Father, immerse them in it. Don't just teach them about the Father, but not the Son and the Holy Spirit. Don't just teach them about the Son, and not the Holy Spirit and the Father. Immerse them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. This is the Bible. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, in the eyes of a worldly Christian, God's Word always seems too strict, too sterile, and too dry to live your life by. Because Israel had departed from the Bible, in their eyes, they did not believe that they were doing evil. But it is how things look in God's eyes that matter. Notice, before God delivered Israel from the Philistines, He delivered Israel into the hand of the Philistines. You understand that? Israel was sinning against him, and so he delivered them into the hand of the Philistines. Then they cry out to him and repent, and then he delivers them right back out of the hand of the Philistines, whom he had previously delivered them into. Why would God do this to his people? Well, to teach them two lessons. Number one, sin only leads to desperation, never leads to prosperity. And number two, there is no desperation that God is powerless to save you from if you would repent from your sin and wholeheartedly return to God. The Bible says that he delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. You know, 40 is a biblical number of trial or judgment. Let's continue reading in Judges 13, verse 2. Now, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Now, the name Dan also translates to judge. And yet, the tribe of Dan had a dubious history. They lacked judgment. (laughs) 
they attacked the innocent, defenseless village in order to claim their territory. Thus, they disregarded God's command to offer terms of peace. They looked down, they saw a peaceful village, and they said, let's go kill them all. That's what God would want. But God said, no, before you go to attack a city, first offer terms of peace. You say, I've never heard of that. I thought God hated Gentiles in the Old Testament. No. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. Now, the tribe of Dan also had enlisted the help of a wayward Levite. So they were men with no judgment, and they had a priest who was compromised in his spirituality. He practiced idolatry. Now, over time, this mix of God's word and Baal worship set the tribe of Dan at odds with the Lord. It was shameful. It was a shameful event prophesied by the patriarch Jacob. He saw it long before it ever happened. Listen to what the Lord said through Jacob in Genesis 49, verse 16 through 18, concerning Dan's future. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Literally, it means the judge shall judge his people. But what happens when the core value system of your judgment is compromised? Verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent by the way a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that its rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now, later in the Bible, during the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam, a man named Jeroboam will split the kingdom in two. And Jeroboam uh, will win the hearts of ten of Israel's tribes away from worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem. And how will he do this? By creating two golden calf idols. And one of those idols, Jeroboam, will station in Dan. That is, in the the territory of Dan. And Dan, by the way, by this point, was the perfect apostate Israel town, whose culture was ready-made to accept idolatry. Now we know that, knowing the, uh, knowing the history of Dan, how they were compromised in judgment because they had already compromised their worship. This is the culture that Samson was born into. God wanted to raise up a judge from the tribe whose name means judgment in order to show how their judgment was off. It was the culture that Samson was commanded to be faithful to God within, so as to deliver his tribe from the effects of their own idolatry. And sadly, Dan later in history became known as the Lost Tribe, because after the return of the Babylonian exiles, Dan is never mentioned in Scripture as a tribe again, not even in the book of the Revelation. The Bible says that this woman, who was Samson's mother, was barren and she had no children. You know, physical barrenness is common among the matriarchs of the Bible. And though not directly related, it is symbolic of a deeper spiritual condition that would never organically produce faithful generations. Let's keep reading in Judges chapter 13, verse 3. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne children, but, uh, I'm sorry, and borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, 
and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines." The angel of the Lord came to visit. It's not just an angel. It's the angel of the Lord, capital A, probably in your Bible is written as such. It is none other than the Messiah. We know him later as Jesus. The angel of the Lord, capital A, angel, is always in the Old Testament a, uh, a description of the Messiah. He says, you shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall deliver his people. Interestingly enough, it is the same message that the angel, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel from the Lord, told Mary and Joseph about Jesus, Matthew 1, verse 21. And, he sh- and she will bring forth the son, and you will call his name Jesus, which means God saves in Hebrew, Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, would you rather be saved from a particular circumstance, like, oh, we're in the hands of the Philistines? Or would you, have, uh, would you rather have the entirety of your sins removed? Because that's the difference between a man whom God uses and when God uses humanity in order to save them from their sin. Judges chapter 13, verse 6 says this, So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God, meaning the Messiah. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. Interesting. Proverbs chapter 2, verse, uh, Proverbs 30, verses 2 through 4. Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I always tell people that's what my wife prays over me every night. (laughs) I have neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name if you know? Now look at this, Genesis chapter 32, verse 29. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray, when he wrestled with the Messiah. Uh, you know, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And, and the angel of the Lord said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Or what about Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14? Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, What's his name? Well, what shall I say to them? And the God of Moses said, uh, uh, said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Doesn't give him his name. Throughout the Bible, God has withheld his name for whatever reason. Whenever people said, hey, what's your name? And he wouldn't tell them. But to us, he has revealed his name. Of course, we know the name of Jesus. Yeshua means God saves. And it is truly God who saved us through the person of Jesus. And Jesus said this to the Father as he prayed in John 17, verse 26. And I have declared to them your name. And will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, 
Moses wanted to know his name. He didn't tell him. Joshua wanted to know his name. God didn't tell him. The writer of the Proverbs says, what is his name? What is his son's name? And even Samson's own mother says, you know what? He didn't really tell me his name, but we have had his name revealed to us. Amen. Judges chapter 13, verse 7 continues like this. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. It is the parents' duty to instill biblical values to their children. And God was telling Samson's parents that if Samson is going to be as mighty in his biblical values as he will become in his physical strength, then his calling must be received and reinforced first by his family, namely the father and then supported by the mother. Now, even Samson needed to be discipled. Otherwise, his power would not be under submission to God's purpose, which we will learn later. He would never be meek, And he would cause more harm than good. You know, sometimes people have innate, God-given talents and abilities, and yet they don't use it for his glory and for his kingdom, and they end up causing more harm than good. Judges uh, Judges 13, verse uh, 8 he says, And then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man... uh, Man of God, whom you sent to us again, uh, let let him come to us again uh, and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again, and she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And then the woman ran in haste to to tell her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, uh, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? And so the angel of the Lord, the Messiah, we know him as Jesus, said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, uh, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything that is unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Basically, before Samson is going to become the man that he's going to be, he needs to be raised in a home that walks according to God's word. And do not waver in walking according to God's word. If you're going to offer an offering, don't offer me a meal but offer to the Lord, meaning what? Don't offer to Baal or any other pagan god. The Messiah was making sure that Manoah was sacrificing to him. I hope you understand who I am. Instead of a pagan god, 
And it's also proof that the angel of the Lord was the Messiah because he commanded and received worship. Let's keep reading in Judges chapter 13, verse 17. And then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? Then, when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? I don't think you could even understand it. It's wonderful. Look at what the prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah. Also, just like Micah, hey, he's going to be born as a baby, but his goings forth are from eternity. He will really be God himself, who is in a human suit, as it were. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful counselor. He says, hey, what's your name? Oh, yeah, you know, I can't really tell you my name. It's it's wonderful, all right? It's more than you think it could be. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What does that mean? It means that God himself exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, Mighty God is Wonderful Counselor, Holy Spirit, Prince of Peace, the Messiah, Everlasting Father, the judge of all. Let's continue reading in uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock, uh, on the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And then Manoah and his wife saw this. They fell on their faces to the ground. (laughs) I bet they did. He did a wondrous thing. Why? Because he is true to his word. He says, I will do wonderful things and your son will, I'll do wondrous things through your son. And then here he does a wonderful thing. He ascended in the flame. Now, Acts chapter uh, 13, verse 20, he, he ascended in the flame. Now, consider this in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God descends as a flame. Let's keep reading in Judges chapter 13, verse 21. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. He knew that he was the Messiah. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. You know that old saying, hey, if we were going to die, we'd be dead by now. So he doesn't want to kill us. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things at, these, at this time. Samson's mother obviously had more faith <laughs> and a greater understanding of the Messiah, which is perhaps why the Messiah came to her first. Uh, She had a greater understanding and more faith than many who stood face to face even with Jesus. John chapter 5, verses 37 and 38. And the Father himself who sent me, this is Jesus speaking, has testified of me, and you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. So, So Jesus... Uh, saw in Samson's mother a greater faith 
than even the Pharisees and Sadducees who stood before Jesus in his presence and experienced his miracles. And yet they found a way to, you know, to not believe. Judges chapter 13, verse 24. So the woman bore a son, called his name Samson, and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. I love that. She called his name Samson. Samson in Hebrew means bright sun. And God will show his glory, the brightness of his glory through Samson during the darkest times of Israel. And we finish here in verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 13, verse 25. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahaneah Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. Samson was beginning to shine like the sun. The glory of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. His parents were doing everything they were to do. They were raising him according to the word of the Lord. He was separate. Mahana, Mahane Dan means the camp of Dan. It was a place between Kiriath-Jerim, where 600 Danites from Zorah and Eshtaol camped on their way to capture the city of Laish, which they rebuilt and called Dan after the name of their father. Again, just to review again, the Danite tribe, one of the last to take possession of their inheritance, had acted sinfully by a surprise attack upon an innocent village of Laish. And the people of Laish were peaceful. They had no affiliation with any other nation or any other man. They were just living peacefully and isolated. And Dan acted sinfully by waiting to obey God and postponing the possession of their allotted lands. They also sinned by not first offering terms of peace to a peaceful people. Furthermore, the Levite, whom the tribe of Dan had conscripted to lead them spiritually, was himself spiritually compromised. So he led them in a half-hearted, part Yahweh, part idolatry form of religion. They felt like they were being worldly enough to be, you know, liked by the world, and yet they were godly enough to be, you know, doing the minimum of what it, uh, the Lord might require. You know, half-hearted faith is not faith at all. They claimed to be God's people, but they clung to a form of godliness. Now, why would God call and raise up and send Samson to Mahane Dan? It was the place where the people's sin had first occurred. Deliverance must begin at ground zero. Right? The Bible says that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Well, guess what? That's where revival has to begin, too. And now that we're up to speed uh, with the events leading up to tonight's chapter, let's read Judges chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 1. Judges 14, verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. He went down and he saw. So this is not a good sight. Because Samson is walking by sight and not by faith. Bad company corrupts. See also Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. See also Eve in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, 
and a tree desirable to make one wise. You see, she was hungry. She saw it. She wanted it. Then she took of the fruit and she ate it. And she also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Let's continue reading in Judges chapter 14, verse 2. So he went up and he told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, go and get her for me as a wife. And then his father and mother said to him, your, your brother, uh, I'm sorry, is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all of my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said this to his father, get her ready for me, for she pleases me well. You know, his parents asked the right question. Formerly pagans, now trying to live godly. His mom hasn't, you know, the whole time that he was in the womb, she didn't drink anything, either wine or any other strong drink. And she didn't eat anything unclean. And they're all trying to live kosher. He's like, is there no woman among the daughters of, of, of the Israelites? Given the tribe of Dan's history with idolatry, there may not have been any righteous women, frankly. But did that not mean that Samson was free to choose a pagan, right? No way. Samson is becoming an example of a person who is chosen, called, and gifted, but refuses to live wholeheartedly according to God's word. And the papers and and churches are littered with such pastors. Let's continue reading in Judges chapter 14, verse 4. But his father and his mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. You know, God will use your righteousness and also your unrighteousness. It just means that you won't get blessed if you're using unrighteousness. So don't be proud if God uses you through unrighteous means. He's working in spite of you, not to bless you. His father and his mother did not know that it was the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. And now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. So a lion attacks Samson. But look at what happens. A young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson. And Samson tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So a lion attacks him. He kills the lion. Wouldn't you want to tell your parents about that? Why did the lion attack him? Why would Samson not tell his parents? Well, perhaps the Lord was trying to dissuade Samson from entering into this ungodly marriage. And yet Samson used his God-endowed strength to disobey God. And if so, Samson did not boast of the slain lion because his parents would have sensed what the Lord was doing. Thus, Samson's reasoning overrode the Spirit's revelation of God's word. Who And then he ends up robbing God of the glory for having killed the lion. He could have come back and said, hey, listen, God in his glory has enabled me to, to kill this lion. Mom, look at this. Dad, look at this. But he didn't reveal it to them because the lion was sent by God to stop Samson from what he was doing. And Samson said, no, 
I'm not going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do what I want to do. You see, you may say no to the Lord. And the Bible just stated in verse 4 that the marriage was of the Lord. But consider Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. So God can use both our faithful and our rebellious choices in order to ultimately accomplish His will. But what does that mean? That doesn't mean that He blesses our rebellion or that He ordains it, as some think, as if God is obligated to do what, you know, bratty kids want to do. I learned my deepest lessons when God let me make faithless choices. And those lessons come wrapped in pain. Anyone else limping today because of those kinds of lessons? Am I the only one? Now, we could have believed the Lord and avoided the pain because God taught His lesson anyway. And He accomplished His will both in us and through us. But you don't get the blessing if you don't do what God says to do the way that God says to do it. Sure, He accomplishes His will. He's going to do that anyway. But you rob yourself of a blessing. Now back to Samson. Mom and Dad have no idea the mess that Samson is about to stir up. You know, in the Bible, Judah is uh, known as a tribe. And God is known as the Lion of Judah. Right? So Judah is the tribe from which David ends up coming from. Jesus comes from the line of Judah. And so the idea is, is that the lion was coming because of Samson's disobedience. But Samson continued in his own strength, by the way, strength which was given to him by the Lord. Therefore, I can't tell my parents that a lion tried to stop us because they would have said, that's a sign from the Lord. We can't go through with this marriage. You see what sin does? Right? That's that old saying. Uh, uh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Let's continue reading in Judges chapter 14, verse 7. And then Samson went down and talked with the woman, and he pleased, and she pleased Samson well. And after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. And so Samson took some of it in his hands, and he went along eating it. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some of it to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So one lie leads to another, leads to another, and now you're in a trap. And not only a trap, but now that's affecting other people unknowingly. So Samson's secret sin, I say secret sin, there are no sins that are secret to the Lord. It defiled not only himself, but now his parents. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 15, verse 4. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. Also, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. You know, Matthew 15 and Ephesians 6 refer to the fifth commandment. And the fifth command, translated to English, indicates that honoring your father and mother enables you to live long on the earth. But in Hebrew, 
The word translated as earth is also land, uh, ha-adma, and it also means of the ground. So, it's where we get the word Adam, by the way, because remember, Adam was created from a handful of dirt and God's breath, the Ruach, or the Holy Spirit. So, because God did not choose the word Haaretz, which specifically refers to the land of Israel, the command to honor your father and mother is attached to both living in the land that God promised, and it's attached to staying alive within your own body, Har. Adama, right? Your Adam. So let's continue reading in Judges chapter 14, verse 10. By the way, eating anything, eating a dead carcass is forbidden. It's not kosher. Um, eating anything inside of a dead carcass would be like double not kosher. So he is defiling himself and then he's offering the fruit of his rebellion to his parents to enjoy and therefore he is as collateral damage, defiling his parents. Judges chapter 14, verse 10. And so his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Hey, you need some friends? (laughs) James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, what does that say? It's not speaking of saying that, hey, you know, you shouldn't be kind to people that aren't believers. That's not what that means. What that means is, is that your closer friends, those who come close to you and near to you, you lean into them, they lean into you. They should be believers because it is with God's word that they will counsel you and they will receive God's counsel from you if they're believers. If you're a non-believer, you're welcome at our church. You're welcome at our Bible studies. If you don't really believe in the Lord, come and hang out with us. See what it's like to be in the community of believers. And then hopefully you'll want to turn from your sin and surrender to the gospel. But friendship with the world is more than just being friendly enough to invite people in. Friendship with the world means, hey, your value system is my value system and mine is yours. And the closer that people get to the world in such a chummy way, the more you start to see that they won't stand up for the hard truths of the Bible. Let's continue reading in Judges chapter 14, verse 12. And then Samson said to them, Let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Verse 13, If you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give to me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothing. And they said to him, Pose your riddle, that we may hear it. And so he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And now for three days they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, In Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Is that not what you're doing? 
And then Samson's wife wept on him. Now, this is not Delilah. We often think this is Samson and Delilah. This is his wife, first wife. Delilah is his second wife. And then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And and he said to her, Look, I have not explained it to my own father and mother. So should I explain it to you? You see, sin isolates us. Not only is there collateral sin, there are no secret sins. You commit a sin, you say, it doesn't hurt anybody but me. No, it hurts a lot more than you think. It defiles those around you. And then it isolates you from friends and family who should be intimately close to you, but you're becoming more and more intimate with worldliness. I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in my own children's lives. First sin isolates, and then sin dominates. Judges chapter 14, verse 17. Now she had wept on him for seven days while their feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. And then she explained the riddle to the sons of the people. You see, she loved her own people more than she loved Samson or the people of God. Samson had told her because she pressured him. You see, sin, not only does it spread to collateral damage, not only does it isolate you, but sin also clouds your judgment. I'm talking about sin in the lives of the believers. So we lose our grasp of right and wrong when we become more affiliated with the world than we do with the Word. And that that should scare you, to know that only 11% of Christians, or Americans, have ever read the Bible cover to cover. And yet, when 60-some-odd percent of Americans affiliate with Christianity— And then you go, well, if you say you're a Christian, how could you be for abortion? How could you be for gay marriage? How could you be for legalizing opioids and such? Because sin clouds judgment. We lose our grasp of right and wrong. We start championing wrong as if it's right. Samson could not confide in the parents who raised him. And yet he confided to a pagan wife that he only knew for a short time. Let's continue reading in Judges chapter 14, verse 18. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my my riddle. Now the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, the Bible says. And he goes to Ashkelon, verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon. And he killed thirty of their men, and he took their apparel, and he gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. And his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went to Ashkelon. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Samson had enjoyed the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet he did not want to surrender to the purpose of the Spirit's presence in his life. Samson was to be a witness to God, 
from the womb he was to be set apart so that all men would worship the Lord when they saw what God can do through a man. He was not merely a weapon of God's wrath. He was to be a testimony of righteousness. Ashkelon is 40 miles away. Once again, there's that number, 40. 40 miles away from Timnah, far enough away that the Philistine companions of Timnah would be unaware of the news. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have newspapers, right? At best, they had some travelers on a camel, right, who would tell them news of what they'd seen down the road. They had no idea that their new wardrobes had come by the slaughter of their own people. Judges chapter 14, verse 20. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. See, he didn't have any Jewish friends at his own wedding. He, uh, at his own wedding, he, he is marrying a Philistine girl and had Philistine bridesmaids and Philistine groomsmen, and all of his friends had become, had become Philistines and even his best man. And his wife was given to his companion. You know, we don't even know her name. She's so insignificant, except for what she did to Samson. We don't even know her name. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 67 through 12. Now, look at this in terms of prophecy. Samson's wife. Samson, who was called by God from the womb. Samson, whose parents, he even, the Lord converted his parents that they would walk according to the word, to raise their son in a godly house. And yet when he got old enough to make his own decisions, he went away. And therefore, when he who was called by God, empowered by God, and, and protected by God for all those years, had, had a calling on his life when he didn't choose the God who chose him in the moment, well, then his own wife was given to his companion. Same thing happens to David in the future. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses, 60, uh, <clears throat> verses 7 through 12. When David killed Uriah the Hittite, everything was going up and to the right on the chart in David's life. When you graph out David's life, it's nothing but blessing and God going before him. But when he kills Uriah the Hittite just to take his wife, look at what the Lord said. And think about this in terms of the story of Samuel. He says, I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, your tribe plus all the other tribes. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun." ends up being David's own son, Absalom. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. You know, God will spank his kids in Walmart. Even those who make it to positions of leadership, he doesn't care about the reputation of the church. If judgment has to begin, then he's going to do it. You're sinning secretly, I'm going to expose it openly. So we should go before the Lord even now. 
and we should surrender our will and confess our sin before the Lord. The Bible says if we confess our sin, then he's faithful and he's just in doing so to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what are we to learn from this? Was Samson a hero or not? Well, the simple answer is not yet. Samson was a living example of everything that was wrong with the tribe of Dan. They were God's chosen, and yet they only half-heartedly chose to identify with the God who chose them. They were slow to obey, and they were deceptive, even in their eventual obedience. The tribe of Dan were spiritual adulterers, mingling God's promise with pagan practices. Well, spiritual adultery, and now here Samson is shacking up, marrying a pagan woman. It sounds like church in our generation with God working through us, all the while working in spite of us. Samson, like the tribe of Dan, had the promise and the presence of God, and yet Samson chose intimacy with pagan culture over his own. Deuteronomy 89, verses 5 and 6. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you were going in to possess, take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Just because you self-identify with the Lord and have been used by the Lord does not necessarily mean that he's pleased with you any more than God was pleased with Babylon or Assyria or the Philistines when he used them in order to rebuke the people of Israel. So the greater message of Samson's story, as we learn over the next few chapters, are number one, just because God raises up and empowers a superhero to deliver his people doesn't necessarily mean the superhero is righteous. Number two, God never stops winning us even as He is using us in the midst of our sinfulness. He doesn't just want to win the world through you. He wants to win you. Number three, God had no problem with His holy name being tarnished in the short term by publicly rebuking His own people. This is because God knows that His name will ultimately be exalted when His people repent and realign with His word. While the whole world watched him spank his people in public, the whole world will watch him bless them when they return to him. Chapter uh, number four, Romans 8, 28, right? God truly does call all things to work together for the good. For everybody who loves God, you get that? And are called according to his purpose. But that doesn't mean that there's not a penalty or pain for choosing wrongly. Just because we know that He will sweep up our messes doesn't mean that we can just casually drop sin all over the place. Through Samson's story, God is telling the tribe of Dan and the rest of us, there is no sin that He will not punish. There are no depths from which He cannot save. Have you chosen the God who has chosen to die for you? We've been chosen in Christ Jesus and that while we were sinners, He chose to die for us, for the sin of the world, 
that whosoever would believe in him would turn from their sin and receive the atonement which he has provided, we shall be saved. And then he goes about the process through the power of the Holy Spirit, now living in your life, now that you're a believer, to reveal to you his ways so that we can walk within his blessing. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. We are different, new creations. You know, he's proven the power of transformation to the uttermost by raising Jesus from the dead. And he will do the same for you if you'll surrender to him. You know, I can lead you in a prayer right now where you can speak to the Lord yourself and you can surrender to the gospel. You can confess your sin to him because we all sin. You can talk of his holiness and you understand that and that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and that he rose from the grave. You can receive salvation now if you want it. And if you believe the things which I'm going to pray, well, then pray them back to the Lord. The Bible says if you believe it with your heart and you confess it with your mouth, you shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I know that you're perfect and you're holy and I can't live by that standard on my own. But I believe that Jesus is God made flesh. I believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the grave and he is alive today, offering to me forgiveness of all my sin if I would turn from my sin and receive it. So Lord, I surrender control of my life to you. I'm turning from my sin now. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and begin to teach me from your word how to live a life of thankfulness in the purpose which you have called me to. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I'd love to hear from you. If you're watching on YouTube, you can comment there, hey, I just prayed with you, what do I do? We've had people that have done that. Or you can go to our website, groundworksministries.com, and uh, and when the info section comes up there, you can type a message to us and say, hey, I prayed with you, what do I do now? We're just reading the Bible, a chapter a day. I'm Steve Wiggins, and this is the Groundworks Ministries. Check us out at groundworksministries.com. Solace in the Word on Solace Radio. Well, this morning, I, I want to share some thoughts with you about what I would call the, the dynamic nature of the life of God in us. As the Bible describes in many places the nature of the new covenant in Yeshua, that new covenant that we have been brought into, We know our sins are forgiven. We are cleansed of all unrighteousness through receiving that gift of salvation. God gives us a new heart, a new spirit. He sends his spirit to dwell in us. And so the life of God himself dwells in us. I mean, this is all basics. And yet for many believers, life in Yeshua can be frustration. 
because we know this walk with God is meant to be joyful and dynamic, and yet many just do not experience this, and we may wonder why. John 16, Yeshua was speaking to his disciples, and he's, he's telling them that the time would come soon when he would be leaving them. And he said to them, along the lines of this, he, essentially he said, this causes sadness in you that I'm leaving. But I want you to understand it's actually better for you if I go, because then I can send my spirit to dwell in you, to live in you. And I've, I've brought this out before in other messages, but it's such a striking passage. And, and you know, we can just imagine what Yeshua's disciples might have thought of when, 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 he, when he said this. They, they had walked with Yeshua and experienced some amazing things. Not just the miracles, but the incredible life of love and, and giving out that he exhibited. The disciples had walked with the most godly, loving, giving person who had ever lived. And obviously their own lives were, were transformed just by being with him for those three years. And now he's telling them, and of course he was talking about that he would be he would go to be with the father. He's telling them, it's really better for you if I go. And of course, the question they must have wondered was, how can this be? I mean, how come on? How is that possible? Well, the truth is. We as men and women created in the image of God, born of the spirit of God, we were not created to simply watch someone else do exciting works. Or read about someone else doing exciting works. We were not created to merely observe love and godliness in Yeshua as our example. But we were created to live this out ourselves. We were born of the Spirit of God so that we might let that life of God that is in us by the Holy Spirit flow through us to bless others. And friends, that is what we have been redeemed for. I thought I was redeemed just to go to heaven. No, 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 no. I mean, yes. If we've received Yeshua, we will spend eternity with God rather than separated from God. But we weren't redeemed for heaven or heaven alone. We have been we have a time here in on this earth and God has very special plans for us. But the sad fact is many believers live their lives with the head knowledge of the blessings of our new life in Yeshua, that his life is in us, that we're now beloved children of God embraced by our heavenly father and promised such great blessing. And all of this is absolutely true. But for many believers, there is primarily an orientation to the personal enjoyment of these blessings with little vision for giving it back out. And as a result, many believers, I mean, just to put it bluntly, to put it very honestly, many believers are bored and unfulfilled. As they have not grasped 
that the real enjoyment of God's blessing, the full enjoyment of God's generosity toward us, is experienced in its highest form as we give out on every level of life. Now, you know what happens when you're bored. Any parent with children knows what happens when their children get bored. You hear those two words, I'm bored. As adults, we're not quite so blunt in how we do that. But here's the thing. I know when my kids were young, when they were bored, that was when there was the greatest potential for them to get into a little trouble. Well, many believers today are simply bored. And often that boredom can end up leading people to drift into sin and compromise. I'm not saying boredom is the only reason for that. Sometimes it's rebellion. Sometimes it's peer pressure. Lots of different things play into the sin and compromise that we may give ourselves to. But sometimes it's just the fact that believers are bored. But now, how can this be? How can we possibly be bored as believers when we have the abundant life of God, the life of Yeshua in us? Plus, think about it. We have to be living in the most exciting time for any believer to be alive in terms of just the overall plans and purposes of God. And all that's happening in the world today. How can we be bored? How can believers be bored? Well... I've come to believe that one of the main reasons for boredom in the kingdom is because we too often have little or no vision for giving out to other people. And as a result, we keep Yeshua's life and his blessing bottled up in us rather than releasing it and giving it out, which is the greatest source of satisfaction and fulfillment. Dwelling with us as believers are the riches of God's spirit. And yet we so often live our lives as if we have nothing to give and with no vision for blessing others. And I think the body of Messiah in these times may need a deeper heart revelation of the magnificence of the person of Yeshua. And the reality of his life in us, the abundance of his blessing, because it's only when we see and really take hold of the greatness of what he's done for us, only then will we have vision for living life in that realm of extravagant giving, extravagant generosity on every level of life. Friends, I believe I believe we have come into a time and I mean, it's not like it's new. I mean, I think it's been a time like this for years. But when the difference in the quality of life between those who know Yeshua and those who don't and by quality of life, I am not talking about economic status. Or social status. I'm talking about there being a a, a quality of the divine presence of God resting upon those who declare Yeshua as Lord and King versus the world which is lost and has no idea where it's going and doesn't know it's lost. But the difference in the quality of life between those who know Yeshua and those who don't, that difference is going to become more and more obvious, more and more blatant. And as times get more intense and more difficult and more uncertain, those who are of the world will become more fearful and anxious, holding on tight and hoarding what they have, while those who walk with God 
will be giving their lives away. Giving out, blessing others, sharing the joy of the Lord, offering hope. There is to be a marked difference. I believe there's to be such a contrast as God is calling us to be a people who in the power of his spirit, in in, in abundant living faith, will rise up to take hold of a lifestyle that, that, that is radical in its giving nature. that And so radical that we will simply not resemble the world around us. And let's face it. Clearly, the world around us is becoming more and more self-absorbed, me-centered. I realize that's not a word, but it gets the point. Me-centered. Well, as the people of God, I think we are supposed to be going in the opposite direction, don't you think? Now, understand, this is something we have to grow into. And my desire today is is not to push anyone into something that actually would go beyond your faith. My desire is to stir you to build faith in your own hearts in these areas that I'm going to be talking about today. And we do need to begin now to nurture vision for this kind of life that I'm talking about. And the truth is, the, the devil wants to get every one of us derailed and off track before we even begin to step forward into a giving and serving lifestyle. He wants to keep us bottled up where we're looking at ourselves, uh, even spending our time and energy focusing on what's wrong with us. Why we just can't seem to get our lives together. Why we don't experience abundant joy. Why we may feel even so little love for others. Really, it's an introspective and self-centered focus. When our lives revolve around our problems and our shortcomings. And yet the fact is, it's giving ourselves out that releases the life and joy and love of God in our lives. Giving us the sense that we're taking part in something that's meaningful. Friends, when we feel like our lives are bogged down. Or we feel like we're oppressed by the enemy. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for counseling and ministry and deliverance and those kinds of things. Absolutely. But but so often we can get so introspective as we try to figure out how we can see breakthrough. And often there are times when the best way to break the oppression of the devil is just to find somebody to give out to. When we look to bless someone. Especially when we may be feeling a little under it. I, I want to tell you that is an act of faith, faith that lashes out at the devil and can often break the oppression that we may be feeling. We may ask, how does that work? How can that be? Well, we simply have got to remember always that the values of the kingdom of God are a reverse of the values of the world system. They're an absolute reverse, absolute opposite. The world system is based on lust, greed, pride, mistrust, natural reasoning. The kingdom of God is based on faith, hope, love, humility, trust, giving. I mean, we could add adjectives to both or or verbs to both sides. They are two totally different value systems. Turn now, now turn over to Matthew chapter 14. I want us to look at something here. That we can see in 
the life of Yeshua. The situation here, you may recall, Yeshua had just been informed by his disciples about the death of John the Immerser, John the Baptizer. And, and you, may, you may recall that just the, 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 the terrible conditions under which John had been beheaded. There was a party that Herod had thrown. And I mean, it was just, just a very carnal situation where, where, he, where Herod makes this commitment that, uh, uh, that, that, that he would cut off the head of John the Immerser. And so, you know, imagine how Yeshua must have felt knowing the senseless cause of John's death. The carnal circumstances that provided the scenario for John to have been beheaded. And, and I want to pick up in verse 13. Then when Yeshua heard it, he departed from there by a boat to a deserted place by himself. Well, that's, that's normal. I think he wanted to be by himself. I think he wanted to reflect. I think he wanted to pray. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Yeshua went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Think about it. Yeshua could have said, as the crowds gathered around him yet again, he could have said, Come on, guys, just give me a break. G- give me a little bit of personal space, would you? I just don't feel like reaching out to you today. I need some privacy. I mean, my best friend has just been senselessly killed. But it says here he had compassion for the people. And so he gave out to them. And in effect, Yeshua was making a statement to the devil as if to say, Satan, you may be able to inspire acts of senseless violence and brutality and perversion in this world. But the weapons of my kingdom are to love and to give and to bless. And by doing that, I will wreak havoc upon your kingdom of darkness. That was the best way to strike out at the devil, to give out and to get people set free. When everything in him might have preferred to just go be by himself and not and not around people at all. Friends, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world operate based on different principles and different values. And if we want to be fulfilled as believers, we need to learn to live in that spirit of generous giving, because giving, we might say, is the currency of the kingdom of God. Not talking about money necessarily, although these values clearly apply to what we do with our money and our possessions. But I'm talking about life as a whole. That out of the deposit of God within us, out of his love and acceptance and blessing that he's lavished upon our lives, causing us to be filled in our hearts from that we give out to others. Now, understand What I'm talking about here, even though the empowerment for this giving out is is on a different level since the death death and resurrection of Yeshua, because as believers, we actually have the spirit and life and presence of God within us. However, what I'm talking about here did not did not begin with the new covenant in Yeshua. But 
This principle has always been foundational in Scripture. Historically, this has always been God's intent in redeeming his people as the, as the pattern throughout the Scriptures that God's redeemed people are to be givers to one another and to the world. God built into the fabric of the life of Israel this principle of generosity and giving out. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, God's first recorded encounter with, with Abram, who later was, was named Abraham. God gives Abram his instructions, and then he says to him, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation, I will make your name great. But he didn't stop there. And you will be a blessing. And then he goes on to say, in essence, Abram, your ultimate purpose is to be a source of blessing to all the nations of the world. You have been redeemed to bless. You have been redeemed to give out. So the first glimpse we get of the covenant people of God, the people who were to become the nation of Israel, was not that we were to be an entity unto ourselves, but God had a higher purpose of blessing nations through his covenant people. It was a servant role that God called Israel to embrace. Now, I want to look at some things that God incorporated into the life of the nation of Israel. And we're going to see some important foundational principles that God established with Israel. God was calling for a lifestyle that required first giving of ourselves and our substance to the Lord and as well giving out to one another. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 13, Exodus 13. This passage takes place shortly before the Red Sea crossing. Remember, um, the Israelites go through this time where, where, where God uh, brings these ten plagues to the nation of Egypt, ending with the tenth plague, which was the death of all of the firstborn in Egypt. So, this takes place after that, but before, remember then, Israel, Israel, the Israelites leave the nation of Egypt, and, but they, they, they come to the Red Sea. So, fresh in the minds of the Israelites here at this point are the ten plagues. Plagues of judgment against the Egyptians. But at the same time, the Israelites clearly witnessed the divine protection of God on their behalf. So, Exodus 13, verse 2. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Very simple. The firstborn of man and their flock, their animals, their herds, Belonged to God. They were to be set apart for the Lord. And then down in verse 11. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of, of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if it will not and and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck and all the firstborn of men of man among your sons, you shall redeem. In other words, they would pay a price uh, uh, as representing their firstborn children, their firstborn sons. So it shall be 
when your son asks you in that time, in, in the time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord. All males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. Now, look look at what God is doing here. It's very strategic, and the timing is very strategic. He's immediately making it clear to them that as the redeemed people of God submitted to the rule of God, they would not have to fear that which the nations feared in terms of God's judgment. Again, fresh in their minds was the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. And in fact, God tells Moses, the reason you're to sacrifice, you're to, you're to offer to me, not sacrifice as kill, but to give over to me, he says, the reason you're to give me your firstborn is because of the, you saw the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Israel's firstborn, God was saying to the, to, to, to the Israelites, I want you to understand the contrast between my redeemed people and the nations of the world that do not seek me, but instead worship other gods. See, the death of all the firstborn of Egypt demonstrated a plain fact, and that is you can take a nation of riches and wealth and power And no matter what they may do to protect and guard it, the fact is for a people under curse and under judgment, all of your best is subject to destruction. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. But they were under a curse. For their idol worship, for their enslavement of the Jewish people, for many, many different things. And so they lost their firstborn, which represented the best of their land, the best of their nation. But see, for God's redeemed people, there is a reversal of that curse and judgment. And God impresses on the hearts of the people the reality of their being a blessed nation, saying to them, in effect, listen, Egypt was judged and lost everything. I'm going to require of you, Israel, that you give up to me the best that you have. Your firstborn, as well as the tithe of all the animals, the grain, your grain, your new wine, your oil. And I mean, the tithe just comes up over and over again throughout the Torah. I'm going to require that you give those things up to me as a way of honoring me. But instead of suffering loss for it, you're going to get blessed more than you had before. The redemption of all the firstborn, the tithe. These were to be faith expressions of a people who understood they were freed from the curse, freed from the fear of loss. The same things that were destroyed and taken from the Egyptians, Israel was in faith to give up, to offer up her best to the Lord and not fear lack. The tithe and the first fruits offerings, they were meant to be a reverse principle to the destruction of Egypt's firstborn. Telling Israel, when you honor God with your best, you come under his blessing rather than his destruction and judgment. It's exactly what Proverbs 3.9 says. Honor the Lord 
with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. God was showing his people, don't pour out your best on yourselves. Your best belongs to me. But as you honor me with your best, you can be confident you will never have to fear that you will not be provided for. And friends, that is really the heart meaning of prosperity. We prosper when we come into the heart revelation of our place as children of God. And and the result is that prosperity produces a freedom in giving. Because we live as children of God who know that we are loved and accepted by God. We walk in that confidence concerning his provision and care for us. See, the the evidence of prosperity is not found in what we manage to accumulate. People think the people who are prosperous are the people who have the most. Not true. The evidence of prosperity is seen in our generosity. Because generosity is what demonstrates that we have been freed from fear and from greed. It's the lifestyle of those submitted to and governed by the kingdom of God. See, we're, we're people who live in this world, but we've placed ourselves under the rule of his kingdom. That's why we can give out at times when it seems like logically we should not give out. But then we find that it comes back to bless us eventually. It's also why when our finances are tight, spiritually speaking, the best thing we can do is to give because God's resources are not limited by what the natural picture shows us. But then also it's giving that expresses faith in a different value system and God honors that. Now, I'm, I'm not saying do not do not write checks if you don't have money in your account to, to cover the to cover the check that you write. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if things are tight, giving is one of the things that we need to do. Joe and I have learned this over and over again through the year. I mean, we've been very blessed. But there have been times when things are tight and when it's tight, we, we don't lessen our giving. We increase it. It's just a standard we've lived by. When we don't live by the values and principles of the kingdom, it demonstrates that we really don't believe that God's kingdom is real. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Well, things are tight. Okay, that's real. But see what God says about his kingdom values, that's real as well. And actually, the question is, as a people who live by faith, which which kingdom are we living under? Well, we in a, obviously we live under both. But by faith, we, 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 we step into that realm of the kingdom where it requires that 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 faith of us. Now. I want to just say a few words about tithing, not to make it the emphasis, because this this is not a message on tithing. Understand. And yet tithing is so central to the larger concept that we're considering today. And I believe God made it that way by design. By the tithe, I simply mean the first 10 percent of our income that we give back to God by putting it into the ministry that God has established for bringing spiritual nurture and equipping into our lives. 
At Beth Judah, our belief is the tithe goes to the local congregation, which is the new covenant parallel to the temple system in ancient Israel that was provided for by the tithes of the, that the people brought. Now, we need to understand, biblically, the tithe belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. It's like he's loaned it to us. But it doesn't belong to us. And often people try to figure out, well, should I give 10%, a full 10%? Should I give 5%? What should I? The truth is, it's really not our choice as to whether or not we should give 10%. I mean, it's our choice what we do, but it's not our it's really not an option if we're if we're if we're if we're living in obedience. See, when we do that, when we do that, we're trying to decide whether or not we should hold on to something that does not belong to us. We're keeping for ourselves what God says belongs to him. Now, let's let's just say to, to give an analogy, let's say let's say Leonard came up to us. You see, Leonard drives he drives his pickup truck. Leonard comes to me and says, Jerry, can I could I borrow your car? I had my car, my, my pickup truck uh, uh, has some problems. I had to take it to the shop. Can I borrow your car? Said, yeah, Leonard, you, I'm glad to lend you my car. So his truck gets fixed, brings it back home. I go to Leonard and say, well, Leonard, you, you done with my car? He says, well, you know, I think I want to hold on to it. I think I'd rather keep it. I now, now there's two approaches he might take to that. One might be, I like your car. And so I want to keep it. The other approach might be, you know, I'm a little worried that my truck might break down again. So I'm going to keep your car. See, one is greed. Now, Leonard would never do this because Leonard, Leonard's a man of integrity and a man of faith. But see, one one response is greed. Well, I just like it. And so I want to keep it or covetousness. The other is fear. But see, this is why we can read in Malachi 3, verses 8 through 11, God says to the people they were robbing him because they did not bring in the, it doesn't say the tithe, it says the full tithe. And he says the result is you are cursed with a curse. In the area of finances and possessions, you become no different from the nations because your possessions are under judgment rather than under my blessing. Egypt's wealth came under curse and judgment, and it ended up with Israel, by the way, if you recall. But to Israel, God said, you give me your best and I'll bless you. But if we back off from that and we keep for ourselves what belongs to God, our possessions come back under judgment. We're cursed with the curse, Malachi writes. And the reason is when we release our finances to God, he brings them under his covering of protection. But as long as we insist on controlling it, we're removing it from that place where he is the one protecting it. Now, sometimes you say, well, wait a minute, I did give, I did tithe. And still I had problems. And, and folks, we've got to understand, it's not like an, it, it's not an automatic kind of thing like that. And the reason is because we live in a fallen world in which there is all kinds of spiritual warfare coming against our lives. When you start giving, the enemy is going to start attacking even harder to make you more and more fearful about giving. Or to maybe even leave you thinking that I gave and God didn't bless me and get you disappointed with God so that you go back to holding on to what you have rather than letting go of it and giving. 
Our lives, we are walking out our lives in the midst of a battle, folks. That's why it's not just a a quick automatic thing. Now, I believe that over the long haul, the provision will always come. But again, we've got to realize God's definition of blessing and prosperity is not the same as the world's. The idea is not we'll, we'll have abundance more than we'll know what to do with. The idea will, is we'll have enough for what God's called us to do. For some people, that may be, you know, missions work in a third world country where $100 may be what you need for a month. And if that's what you need and that's what you have, and then you're prospering. Now, God goes on to say in Malachi, if they would bring the whole tithe, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Who's the devourer? Satan, the enemy. There are spiritual forces arrayed against our lives seeking to devour the blessing of God. But when we get into God's system, you know, to put it in that terminology, I don't want to make it mechanical, but yet I'm using terminology that, that I think gives us an image. When we get into God's system, he rebukes the devourer. See, many don't fully tithe or even tithe at all because they get pulled into either the lust and greed or into the fear and anxiety that govern the world system. But God says if we'll learn to release ourselves into a spirit of generous giving, which is the way of the kingdom, he says to us, you can trust me. Give me your best. Give me your first fruits. I'll take care of you. You need to release yourself over to the giving ways of the kingdom of God. So we see Woven throughout the Torah, the principle of God's redeemed people giving up their best to him while remaining confident in God's blessing in our own lives. But now let's look at another side of this, because like I said, this is not just about money. What about the principle of person to person generosity? We'll quickly look at a few examples here. Turn over to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. This had nothing to do with the tithe. It simply had to do with blessing the poor. In other words, when they reaped the harvest, they were to leave some of it uncollected purposely so that the poor and the stranger could partake of the blessing. You mean somebody I don't even know can come and just... Yeah, that's the idea. That's exactly what God has in mind. Turn over to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, verse 24. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. 
but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. What a cool thing this is. Think about it. I mean, think about the level of trust. The level of freedom God's talking about. We see here an interdependence and a sharing of blessings as those who had produce would allow neighbors to partake of their blessing. But see, there is also a responsibility on the part of the neighbor not to take advantage. You know, it's like the like the person who goes to one of these all you can eat buffets and then they want to take some home in a, in a doggy bag, too. And God says, no, no, you can't do that. You could not in greed go into someone else's harvest and start loading up to take it home. And so we see here the complementary principles of sharing and generosity as well as holding ourselves back from greed and covetousness, not taking unfair advantage of others' generosity. Then uh, uh, going ahead one chapter, chapter 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the, in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Similar to the command to leave the corners and and not reap them. But the point is, what you drop, what you don't glean the first time, don't go back for it. Trust me, God says, and leave it there for others uh, uh, for others to partake of, rather than feeling like you have to collect every last bit for yourselves. And so God built into the fabric of Israel's life this image of his redeemed people being a generous people, a giving people, a free people, a people who would be able in faith to let go of what was tangible as they would give out first to the Lord, then to one another, while while believing God for the favor of his blessing. Now, why would they be able to do this? Because they were to they they were to have been a people who oriented their lives according to a different kingdom than the world system, different values. Now, I I think that maybe more than most of the generations of Israel, Abraham was a man who, who, who seemed to really understand that he really grasped it. And perhaps you recall the story of Abraham and Lot. They were together. And they both had, God was just blessing them. Their flocks and their herds were growing. But because they were growing, they were kind of getting in each other's way. And some of their, some of their, their servants were, were, were bickering and fighting with one another. And Abraham says, wait a minute. It's really, really important that we not have this fighting among ourselves. So Abraham goes to Lot. And if you, if you remember the account, I mean, it's a pretty amazing account. He says till God had promised to Abraham. He didn't promise it to Lot. Promised it to Abraham, this huge amount of land. And Abraham says to Lot, listen, you go and you take whatever you want, whatever's left over, that's for me. See, Abraham was oriented to a different kingdom. 
And that's why he could do what he did. He could let, let Lot choose the best because he didn't doubt God's provision for him. He knew he didn't have to control it. He knew he didn't have to manipulate it. He didn't, he didn't lay out a track of land and say, listen, anything but that really good land you can have. No, he said, you take what you want. Take the best. See, that's the mentality that God desires of his people. That, that's Hebrews 11, 1 faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Abraham had in his heart the evidence of things not yet seen. It was real to him. God's faithfulness was real to Abraham. It wasn't just theory. God's redeemed people, certain of God's promise of blessing, living in the mentality of giving and blessing others. That is what he desires. But not only that, it's also when we ourselves will be most fulfilled. Now, Coming back to the broader picture beyond just finances and material things. God is pleased when we give out from our lives in all kinds of different ways. But now there are two levels of doing this. There are two ways that we can give out. One way is to calculate and to analyze and to give out based on figuring out all the details in such a way that we are giving out, but it really doesn't cost us may not be a sacrifice in any way. And this is what I would call safe giving. And certainly that's a start. It's better to be involved in safe giving than no giving. But see, beyond that, and this is what I believe God is calling us to, especially in the times that we find ourselves in, God is calling us to give out from our lives in ways that cost us something. He's calling us to be a people who would give of our time, our resources, our energy, our love. To really give out to the extent that it costs us something. And that is what is most pleasing to God. And of course, Yeshua pointed this out when you remember he talks about the widow who gave gave small amount, a tiny little amount. But it was all that she had. And he said this one. This is the one that gets the attention of God. See, if our giving out doesn't cost us something, if it doesn't stretch us to the point of needing faith for doing it, then there's really something missing because Hebrews 11:6 says without faith, it's not possible to please God. See, as we give out from our lives, we desire that God's spirit would come alongside to bring that supernatural dimension to our giving out. But see, if it doesn't cost us anything, if our lives are so neatly planned and calculated so that even though we're giving of ourselves to some degree, it really is not on a level that requires faith and the grace of God to get us through, then we won't have the grace of God working on our behalf in those areas. God doesn't have, doesn't have to help us in situations that are totally within our natural abilities to accomplish. And so if we desire to have that supernatural dimension of the grace and the power of God in our lives, then our giving out has to be such that it stretches us and it costs us something. 
so often as believers, we might speak of believing God for supernatural increase uh, uh, on our lives, whether it be our ministry, our finances, our, our family, whatever. And yet we ourselves may not be attempting anything in our lives that really requires more than our natural ability. We don't need God's grace for what we can do in ourselves. I was reading yesterday, turn turn over to Acts 14, Acts chapter 14. Let's just take a look quickly at this passage. Verse one. Now, it happened at Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and Greeks, believed But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Here, people were stirring up crowds against Paul and Barnabas. There was there was blatant opposition, even even the potential for violence. And it was going to cost them something to go out and share the good news. There was risk. And if God didn't show up, I mean, they were in pretty big trouble. And so it says that these people were there. These folks from the from the from the religious Jewish community were there stirring up, poisoning people's minds against them. The logical next sentence would have been, therefore, Paul and Barnabas left. But it doesn't say that. It says, it's as if, therefore, they just kept on going. They just kept on preaching. They just kept on sharing. It says they spoke boldly. And what did God do? He bore witness to their word by granting signs and wonders to be done through them. And, folks, this is the pattern we see throughout the book of Acts, throughout the Scripture. We want to see the signs and wonders, the blessings, the, the outpouring of grace. But we want to see it without the risk. But friends, they go together. They do go together. God will send his power when we give out. When we step out into a realm of giving out to others that's beyond our natural means and beyond our natural ability. Now, I understand I'm not trying to push anyone into stepping out beyond your faith. The truth is, if we just try to imitate someone else's faith, we will fall flat on our faces. What I am saying is, look at the biblical model and let it stir something in your hearts on these issues. Look at the underlying principles of being a redeemed people. We have been redeemed so that our lives will first honor God, then serve one another, and then bless a hurting and hostile world that's all around us. Bless the world. Bless the world. That's right. God has saved us for the purpose of, first of all, seeing our our lives renewed, filling us up with his presence, renewing our minds, changing how we see life itself, giving us vision for God's kingdom rule here on this earth. And the fact that we have a role in seeing that kingdom established here and then empowering us and using us so that we can be part of his plan to redeem a lost and broken world. Sadly, too often as believers, we're living simply to survive. 
And a survival mentality will cause us to store up and hold back in all the areas where God wants us to give out and to bless. If our mindset is one of survival, we'll never move into a place of being vessels for the life of God in ways that that will impact other people. We'll have Yeshua's life in us, but we'll just hold on to it and keep it for ourselves. Just keep it bottled up. A survival mentality produces fear. No witness to others. No giving. No outflow of life. While a giving mentality produces even more generosity and boldness. It produces men and women looking for opportunities to give out to people. So how do we overcome a survival mentality? Well... I think it starts with getting before God and just really reflecting, meditating on the richness of his love and provision and giving poured out into our lives. And as we reflect on that love, he's that he's lavished upon us. We open our hearts to allow him to stir us and to inspire our faith for being givers. And as we daily Seek to get to know Yeshua in a deeper way. Out of knowing him better will come revelation and expanded vision uh, that, that perceives more clearly the magnificent nature of the life of God that's within us and the walk that he's called us to embrace. And then out of that clearer perception will arise a sense of vision in our hearts for the value and significance of our own lives. And out of that will come vision for giving out to other people. Friends, it won't happen just by trying a little harder or by moving out in presumption beyond our faith. It will only happen as we seek God, as we walk with him. And as a result, we grow in revelation knowledge of the incredible gift of salvation that he has given to us and a salvation life that he's brought us into. And then seeing the greatness of what's been given to us, our reasonable response will be, Lord, how do you want me to give out to others? I give myself to you first. My time, my schedule, my possessions, it all belongs to me. It all belongs to you. Show me how you would have me to give my life away. Because that's what I've been redeemed for. Let's pray. Father, we, we are all, I, I suspect, needy of help in this area. Lord, I know I am. Lord, what I share, I share out of experience some of which is experience of of holding back rather than giving out. And Father, I'm guessing that all of us would be able to say the same thing. So, Father, we're, we're asking you today to open our eyes to see more clearly this call that you have for our lives, the value that you've placed on our lives, And the deposit that has been sown into our lives for us to be givers in every area of life. Father, we need your help seeing in those times when we're just tempted to survive, when we're tempted to hold on. Help us to see your purpose, your plan. Help us to see with your eyes. Help us to have that compassion that we read about of Yeshua. 
Lord, it's hard to be around people with such need and not be moved with compassion. Lord, we want to be moved with compassion. We also want to be led by your Spirit. So that we can be givers in this world of takers. Givers in this world of those who are looking to hoard and store up. Give us sensitivity, Lord, to opportunities that we have every day to bless another person. So that we might fully represent Yeshua to this world. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together. How would you take the hand of someone near you as we just declare the blessing of the Lord? May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Yasem lecha shalom. Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone.